0: You know, to a weekend of debauchery and rockabilly music and motorcycles and you know hot rod racers. (laughs) First night (laughs) we arrived. Welcome to the Exploring Washington State Podcast. Here's your host, Scott Cowan.
1: All right, well, welcome back to this episode of the Exploring Washington State Podcast. My guest here today is Matt Jorgensen. Matt, you've got a long bio that I'm looking at, but let's just, I'm going to summarize it. Yeah. You're a musician. And you're yeah, an do educator. I many things related to the yeah. music, yes. Yeah. So <laughs> you were born in Seattle, you moved to New York, you came back, you've got a record label. You're now teaching at Shoreline Community College, which is where you started at school as well. So we've just hit all the high points. So I'm going to shut up and just ask you to introduce yourself to the audience.
0: Well, yeah, thank you. Um, My name is Matt Jorgensen. I play the drums uh, and I write some music and I teach some music. Um, So, yeah, I grew up here and um, I started playing drums my freshman year of high school and my brother was take my younger brother was taking guitar lessons so i went down to the Canelli keys in greenwood (laughs) and i wanted to take drum lessons and they said well here's a piece of paper for uh this guy who's teaching drums his name's john bishop and so i would have been 14 i think at the time fast forward i'm about to turn 50 and john (laughs) bishop we still talk on a daily basis because he's the founder of origin records and he's okay. the guy who i've you know worked on the record label you know i started at the record label like two weeks in uh so you know he, he's my partner in all the music business stuff that we've done so that's i mean you know i started playing drums in high school and i didn't really know what i wanted to do so i went to shoreline community college and joined the jazz band there met my friend Tom Abs, and after a year Tom was like I'm gonna move to New York you should too and then I went <laughs> a year later I went and then I hung out there and uh went to the new school for jazz and contemporary music and I hung around for 10 years after that in New York City and Origin Records has started and um, I played a bunch of gigs and did a lot of stuff and uh, met my wife we got married and then you know I didn't want, I didn't I knew I didn't want to stay in New York forever so Origin Records was taking off and we had a lot of opportunities so I moved back to Seattle in 2002 and I've been doing Did, stuff ever since. Between
1: all right so I got to ask you a couple of questions based on all of that. So 14 you started playing the drums. Had you played any other musical instruments before?
0: I I think my mother made me take piano lessons when I was in elementary school which okay. I didn't want to do in hindsight it was really bad of me to quit so if all right those all right. people you know yeah keep stay with it. it it would have been a lot beneficial and then i remember you know and actually um i wanted to take drum lessons in like fifth grade in elementary school and it was not a very good experience with like the school music teacher and so that didn't really last okay but um but then i had uh You know some phenomenal teachers when i got into college and that just really reminds it just you know now that i'm on the other side i'm a a music teacher i i draw on that constantly like how i felt not Mm -hmm. having you know somebody to kind of really help guide me and then you know vice versa with the experiences that i have had when i've had excellent teachers
1: okay the other important question i have out of that intro is you met your wife in new york was it a hard sell to get her to move to Seattle?
0: Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah <laughs> I will say <laughs> we moved. Um, I I mean she had visited and we had been together for a long time, but we did move back to Ballard, uh, and we lived in the early origin records. So John Bishop lived in the junction building which is right across the street from the Tractor Tavern in Old Town Ballard. It's great. Uh, It's nice. It's quite cobblestone roads historic building. And so we were like John, he had an apartment on one side of the building and then an apartment opened up on the other side of the building. And so he's like, well you could rent rent that and I did. And then meanwhile a studio apartment opened up and so we rented that as our office. So we were both in the building and then we had a separate office in the building. Okay. And we moved, we drove cross country and we arrived in Seattle. And anyone who's been to Old Town Ballard or knows the Tractor Tavern knows about the Rock may know about the Rockabilly Ball, which is like, you know, two a weekend of debauchery and rockabilly music and motorcycles and you know <laughs> hot rod racers. <laughs> <So> the first <laughs> night we arrive, I mean music's going till two in the morning and people are out on the street like Uh, I I distinctly remember looking out my window because I hear tires screeching and there's like a Model T or, you know, old Ford zooped up with and then head to head with like an old, you know, uh, cafe racer motorcycle, both with the brake, you know, squealing tires like in a chicken match or, you know, who will flinch first. And they're just screeching. And my wife was like, I didn't move back to Seattle for this. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, that was the first night. And it got better since it got and better sense. lo and behold, she's been back twenty years so
1: so was your wife from New York originally?
0: she grew up there okay. um yeah, and her dad her okay. um you know her parents were kind of hippies, and her dad was a modern artist mo- uh, you know abstract painter okay, and so uh she grew up in New York um and went left for college, and kind of moved back. And and I met. We both met. We worked at Starbucks, both out of art school. She was a modern dancer. I was a jazz musician. We both needed jobs, so we both worked at Starbucks. And I, we were working at like the fifth Starbucks in Manhattan in the early 2000s. No, this would have been uh, mid nineties. Like near, Starbucks had just moved into. It New wasn't York City. the.
1: Uh, was it the Park Place? Was it Park Place? What was the huge one there?
0: The first one for, was on the Upper West Side, like 81st and Broadway, and then there was yeah. Astor Place. Yeah, Astor Place. That's and we one. were on the Upper East Side, and then okay. she moved to the one in the East Village, and I moved to the one down in City Hall. Um, after that, so what did you do? Um, what did you guys do for Starbucks? I mean, were you baristas? Were you store
1: managers? What What did you uh, do? No, doing? just yeah, just baristas.
0: We were th- we were there for the the health insurance and minimum wage. <laughs> did you ever have <laughs> well, to while we did that- our art and all the other stuff? Did you ever have to call the help desk? At Starbucks? Yeah.
1: No. Because you might have talked to me at that period of time. Oh wow. I, I was one of the the, the the support help desk people. So if your cash registers were, you know, not working or uh it was supposed to be for technical support, but literally one time the Pioneer Square store called and said, hey, our toilets are overflowing. What should we do? Yeah.
0: I don't think You're they are frantically my flipping through the book of. Yeah, I don't think they liked
1: my answer. But um, <laughs> anyway, we'll. <laughs>
0: uh, yeah, well, I talked That was before. Like, I mean, basically, there's I mean, it's so I have so much respect for people who work at Starbucks now because like we basically had to make a latte or a cappuccino or a drip coffee. That was it. That was it. You know, like we didn't even write it on. the. There were so few drinks, you didn't even have to write it on the cup. Right.
1: No, yeah, it so. was, that, th- that, that company has, anyway, that's, that's, it would have been really funny if you said, yeah, I called the help desk and be like, well, you we, we might've talked then. <laughs> but it's the, the Astor place one called like, cause that was like, I don't want to say it was, it was their flagship probably in New York. They were Starbucks was yeah. extremely concerned that that store looked perfect and ran perfectly at all times. Right. And so <laughs> they would call us with every li- like every little question.
0: That, I mean, that was such a, I mean, that was such a great time. I mean, looking back on it, I mean, there was so much stuff happening. I mean, even for me, you know, I, I was, when I went to music school in the early, <clears throat> in the early nineties, you know, New York was, I mean, there are parts of New York that are still, uh, inexpensive. Like you can still find deals. You can still go out to eat inexpensive. <laughs> you can find, you know, little places on the street, but you know, when I went there, everyone lived in Manhattan pretty much, and because you could, it was it was affordable. Mm-hmm. And the East Village had so many little clubs to play. Like we were, we played every night of the week, basically. There were little gigs around, and I remember Astor Place. They had music there. They had jazz mm-hmm. music at Astor Place at the Starbucks, and then across the street was Barnes and Noble, um, thriving store. Tower Records was just down the street. You know, you had to right. go out and buy music, and. Right. You know, you had, you had to be a participant in getting the art that you wanted, you
1: know. So you, you convince your wife to move back to Seattle. The first night you've got screeching tires. Yeah. You probably are going, oh, I don't know if this is a good idea or not, but what a great location that, 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 I mean, the tractor tavern is one of my favorite places in, in, in Seattle. I I loved going to see music at the tractor tavern. Um, but here's my interpretation jazz is big in New York jazz doesn't seem to be big in Seattle Now I could be completely wrong but that's just my interpretation and I want you to help debunk that if you can but so you move back you mo- so you move from a vibrant jazz scene to a community that at least in, in my interpretation jazz isn't that big in Seattle so what have you seen improve musically in the Seattle area in the last twenty years?
0: Um, I mean, I think what has improved is the uh, the level of musicianship here and the creativity and the and the musicians who are here. I mean, I think mm-hmm. if if you've casually paid attention to the news and stuff like that, you know, there's a huge thriving, um, youth jazz programs here. All the high schools are you know rose you have roosevelt garfield mount lake terrace mount si uh, edmonds woodway you know a ton of these schools who compete nationally is is you know some of the, the the best programs we send a lot of musicians to a lot of the jazz conservatories whether it be berkeley okay. new england conservatory new school manhattan school um a lot of people a lot of a lot of the younger musicians here are great what i think is lacking now is just venues and places to play right. which is A result of you know prices going up you know amazon and just commercial real estate being ridiculously expensive in seattle Um, no (laughs) yeah yeah, i mean that's yeah moving back if you you know i have these talks occasionally and reminisce (laughs) and you're like oh right that's kind of pre amazon or pre you know there was a ton of places to play when i was coming up just Mm -hmm. just a ton of clubs around seattle and belltown and um down in pioneer square Mm it was hopping uh and it you know it kind of cycles and it goes in phases Uh, do you see
1: it with but the combination of, of commercial rent being exorbitant and covid making it so you couldn't be in a room with more than two people um are you seeing what's the jazz community like now in 2022 is it improving slowly are you starting to see that
0: uh it you know it goes in waves i i I really think you know we talk about this uh you know me and john bishop we started the ballad jazz festival in 2003 and that's kind of that was going every year up until covid and a bunch of people you know do stuff tom marriott's doing stuff now with seattle jazz fellowship it really takes a few people to kind of make a scene happen you know you don't want to have one venue You, you know have a couple venues that are going and and that can really improve things but right. I, I think you know, artist types were always creative, in that, uh, you know, yeah, rents insane now. So maybe we find a way to produce music at unconventional venues in in a way. When we started the Ballard Jazz Festival, you know, the 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 highlight of that is the Ballard Jazz Walk, where we have multiple venues all on a joint ticket price. So you can okay. go. You know, we've had twelve venues. You buy a single ticket, you can go see twenty bands. Over the wow. course of the night in 12 different venues. Some of those venues have been furniture stores or a yoga studio who they clear out. And we, put, we rent some chairs and we put them up. And it's it's great. So, yeah, we don't have the level of local jazz clubs the way we have before. But I think artists will always find a way to make art. And if that right. involves asking your friend who's got an art gallery if we can do concerts there then we'll do it and people will show up and we'll have a good time
1: all right so i'm gonna ask you a hard question or actually not hard i'm gonna put you on the spot are you gonna you guys gonna try to relaunch the ballard jazz festival
0: uh yes we were strongly considering it um into we, we were just having talks kind of with our uh informally we were all out at a music event last night and ran into a couple people and we were like yeah we need to sit down and scope it out we thought about for 2022 i here's here's the uh the, the scary thing and the uncertain is it's the uncertainty and i think we even thought about doing it in was it 2021 i think and it was right when omicron hit you know and we were right. like okay we're going to do it and we started putting things in into play and then omicron came and within a week, everything kind of reshut down. And it's like, well, you know, we're not an institution. We don't have like, you know, infinite funds. It's really kind of us betting on the fact that there'll be money in the bank to pay for it. So I think for (laughs) us, the the scary thing for me was the fact that, you know, stuff can shut literally close in a week. And so if we plan and then we get the festival's three months away and then two months and two weeks away another thing hits then we go but i think you know now i think we're you know knock on wood that um we're looking at it this next year just because you know we've learned i mean i I think Mm -hmm. there's a lot of just over the past couple years there's a lot of um you know lot it's, it's been tough. And there's, a, I think there's a lot of mourning for a lot of the stuff that's happened, but in a way it's, there's, there's been a lot of invention, a lot of, um, n- new, you know, rebirth that's kind of come out of this. So I, I, I think you can look at it both ways. So I think for us, it's, it's, that was kind of a learning thing to say, well, things can shut down pretty quickly, but I think now as society, we've kind of, we're, we're moving on and we're going to do it no matter what. Well, it'd be great because I think,
1: you know, I, I think we need more people putting together events that the public can get out and go see, whether it be a jazz festival or an art walk or, you know, tires, you know, who's going to blink first if they're power breaking. (laughs) Maybe not that one. (laughs) Well, you know, I don't know. Maybe now we'd walk. I don't know, but I think it's good that, you know, people are trying this and you're right though. It is, it is incredibly um uh, it does seem like things can i don't know, I don't know how do i say this? maybe overreact uh, well, and, and the, the, you know and everyone needs to be safe i don't know trying to say that but yeah
0: we... the thing i will say is that in the 30 some years that i've been doing this the thing that i've learned and the things that we've been forced to do i mean even take away covid you know like mm-hmm. even the ballard jazz festival We've been forced to kind of reinvent that festival 3 or 4 times already because the neighborhood has changed. Um, you know, venues have gone away or, you know, what used to be a music venue is no longer a music venue. It's it's something else. Right. Um, we, you know, we started at, you know, a museum, the north, you know, we at one point we were doing concerts at the old Nordic Heritage Museum and they closed and they moved and then it's like, well, this year were in, you know they were in transition for a year as they moved into a new venue so now we have no host venue so now we need to find something else and where are we going to go um so i think you know we've we've encountered um having to reinvent multiple times and this is going to be another one of those situations which you know i think if i was a genius i'd figure out a way to write a business guru book about <laughs> invention but i'm not um but it's just what you have to do well kudos to you guys though for not you know not festivals are a lot of work
1: um in the best of times much less in current you know let whatever words are hard for me this morning i think i need more coffee my gosh um but kudos for you for not giving up i think that's you know it's a testament to your stick to it in that's awesome. Thank you. So you came back to Seattle. What did you start doing? Like, so were you were you just playing professionally at that time, or what and what was your wife doing? I mean, so let's go yeah, back Yeah, my wife years went
0: now. to uh she's a modern dancer. She did the grad program at the University of Washington for dance. Okay. Um, and then yeah, I was just, you know, Origin Records had been going for four or five years at that point and Mm -hmm. we were getting some traction and it was requiring you know it was requiring daily kind of interventions on stuff to do (laughs) and you know john and i like you know we both kind of we both just i always say we we just we you know we want to make our art and we want to make music and so it's like what kind of whatever it takes to make that happen no one mm-hmm. was giving us a record deal, so we'll make our own record label and we're broke. So, you know, John is had figured out how to do all the graphic design stuff and I had been fooling around building websites for artists. This is like early web design stuff. Right. So I did the website and he did the covers and we built an online store and we started shipping records all over the world and we got distribution and then you know concerts venues would pop up and we'd put on shows and just we were just doing anything it took to put out records and play shows and do gigs i tour you know we'd tour and i was releasing my own records and playing on other people's records and just doing the thing you do when you're a artist in your late 20s i guess right but but you
1: key into that into that whole description there was broke yeah how does one how does one launch? How do you bootstrap a record label? Uh,
0: I mean, we were, <laughs> I guess you know, you'd consider it an artist cooperative, and that's okay. really what it was: is that we were licensing albums from the artists, um, and so a majority of the revenue went back to the artists, which was great. Um, and so we just, yeah, it was just doing um, putting coming together as a collective, and I think that's a good um model for anything really i mean <laughs> it was all of us in it together and it was almost like a band of misfits and rejects because again it was like we're, you know it's it it, it like and this is our 25th anniversary there's just a, a article on john and origin records that just came out in downbeat magazine and it, you know okay. he's kind of waxing poetic about the old times and it really was you know the, the label started cuz John had four records that he all played drums on and he did the album for and then around the same time I was like well I have this album I'm working on too and I can do the website and can we put that out and then more people came and they said well I have this record can I do it too um put it out and it just went from there and and you know we were active on the scene we were doing gigs a lot of people knew us and then mm-hmm. as word got out people you, you know I you know there was a couple artists who were kind of a big deal and and a couple of them you know they lost their record label or they got dropped from their label and they like well i'd like to keep putting this out Mm -hmm. they'll come over to us and put out a record or two records and then get signed by somebody else um so i think it's yeah it's it's um i i tell my music students you know a career in the music business is a marathon not a sprint and i think looking back on 30 years it's just john and i's you know a lot of it was our reputation and people trusted us and the fact that we were musicians too the fact that we just showed up and cared Mm -hmm. that that (laughs) that gets you a long ways you know integrity and and just that other stuff
1: let me ask you though so so i'm old compared to you i'm old and when i think when you when i hear origin records i think vinyl lps that's what you know, the word record is an yeah. album to me right i i now 20 25 years ago vinyl wasn't i mean it was we all wanted cds at that point so were you guys putting things out on vinyl were you putting it out on cd
0: well what? it coincided like kind of the birth of origin in 1997 kind of co- coincided with the just the price drop in manufacturing cds so you're mm-hmm. able to manufacture cds relatively inexpensive right um and if you could make this if you could record the cds you know mm-hmm. uh relatively inexpensive then you're you have a pretty good you know and then if you could sell the cds you have a pretty good profit margin built in. Right. right um and the price of manufacturing cds just continue to drop um uh, don't so, they
1: pay you now if you, I mean, aren't they paying, isn't, I'm kidding. You know, this is yeah. paying you. For I, think, CD I think it's about a dollar,
0: a dollar, a dollar a yeah. CD to manufacture. So if you sell that thing for 15 bucks, 20 bucks, nice that's margin. a pretty good profit margin. Yeah. Um. So that's, yeah, that's how we, we, we just kind of, John would do the covers and okay. we'd get the CDs manufactured and we had kind of some distribution channels set up and artists would go out on tour Um, and so that, that was the thing. This was pre, I mean, this was really pre-online, pre-Amazon even selling CDs, way pre-digital. Um, so I think, you know, the whole digital music thing kind of changed it,
1: Mm -hmm.
0: you know, for the worse, for artists, for the better, for consumers. If I was a, a musician
1: and be thankful that I'm not, because um, but if I was a musician and, and I wanted to work with you guys, you would, it, it, let me make sure I'm understanding you, you would license my album to so the option to, to publish my album. Yeah. Right. And so was that like you, you, we'd sit down and agree to, you would have, you know, a thousand copies made. Yeah.
0: Yeah, so we kind of act as the middle middle person in between, Mm -hmm. Um, and which actually works out great. I mean, I I I think in a way, um, the you know it's the ownership of the sound recording that's Mm -hmm. really the the thing of value, and Mm -hmm. if the artists are able to maintain that ownership, which they do in a licensing Mm -hmm. deal more often than not, then that's where. You know their value is if they can find ways to sell the music and do all that other stuff um so it's it's you know the music industry has a fine history of exploiting artists <laughs> and oh. you hear horror stories and a lot of those horror stories just come from the fact that you know if you're working for a big record label they're giving you it in advance against your royalty rate of a dollar per mm-hmm. album sold or something like that so if you spend a hundred thousand dollars recording it you need to sell a hundred thousand copies before you even make any money but again we know that an album costs a dollar to make so if the record label you know they've sold a hundred thousand copies at 15 you know six bucks because they sell it to distributors so the record labels made six hundred thousand dollars and the artist has broken even
1: (laughs) yeah yeah and it, it, it so so in this case then you're you're helping the artist whose strength is being a musician not necessarily a business person
0: yeah okay. and i think it comes and, out i mean for us it came out of it was a model of how can we stay in business because that's the other thing is that you know the music i mean kind of like the book industry i was seeing on they said you know 95% of books published don't sell more than 5000 copies and it's the you know, the Daniel Steele's and the Tom Clancy's who's and the Stephen King's who sell, you know, massive amount of books. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, They they pay for everyone else's memoirs being published (laughs) and stuff like that. So, you know, for us again, it was just, we were just trying to figure out a model that worked. And I will, you know, for the, the recording industry in the in the late nineties is that we were the outliers in that you know, we were doing things a little bit differently. Well, jump ahead 10 years, 20 years. Now everyone's kind of doing it the way we do because mm-hmm. we did it because that's, that's just, you know, that's the way it kind of works now is that if you're an up and coming artist, you're not going to get signed to a record label until you've proven that you can be hugely successful. You know, there's right. very little risk taking on the side of record Capital labels Records. now because yeah. there's so much at risk. Right. Yeah.
1: So are you now today you guys are still releasing albums, correct? Oh yeah. Okay. So are you actually are you still doing CDs or have you have you transitioned quote unquote back to vinyl? Or
0: what's currently what's the product look like? We do all of the above. Some albums, okay. some 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 releases will come out on vinyl. Everything comes out on CD. Okay. Everything comes out on digital. Um so it's it's kind of a combination of all of the above.
1: Okay. Is it still fun after twenty five years?
0: Yeah, you know, uh, folks, I've just you been can't back. see his
1: face. He, I got to interrupt him. <laughs> you can't because this is an audio only. He had this look kind on of his face, like you could tell it's still fun. But I think he was thinking about an event or two that might not have been fun recently. That's well, just my nah, interpretation. I, I bring this
0: up because I, I was, <laughs> uh, I, I mean, I, I, I've been in the studio recording music over the past few weeks now I will say I've not I've been in recording not uh jazz albums or music albums I've been recording stuff for like tv writing stuff that I do but the the, the, the takeaway was like it feels really fun to after the past few years to be in the recording studio with fellow musicians making music and not being like completely freaked out you know everyone's vaccinated everyone's Right. You know, most of us have gotten COVID it's, you know, and recovered from it. So, you know, just, I I, I was thinking about this and talking to my wife, just, the, it's like, Oh, right. This, this, you know, it's yeah. Running a business is not fun. <laughs> you know, it's like, I was going yeah, to
1: Washington, just easy to work with, you know, the States so much fun. Yeah.
0: yeah. I mean, you know, it's like, occasionally we get, you know, you're dealing with the logistics of shipping boxes of CDs and they go to the wrong address or, you know, you know, we've had, the the fun where you open up the cd and you're like that's not the album (laughs) like you know like the the machine the sorter gets off and so all of a sudden we have a thousand (laughs) cds with the wrong cd inserted so you got to ship them all back and they got to redo um so that stuff's not fun but the 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 art part the being in the studio with other people making music that's fun you you know you forget sometimes but so so does
1: origin help with recording do you guys provide you know that or is it are you does the does the artist bring you the fully mixed ready to go
0: album it's all of the above i mean because like right now we're an international label so we have artists all over the world so some of them yeah you know artists in europe are doing their projects independently and they send us when they're done Mm -hmm. but we have local artists too who we you know help or you know, sometimes John and I still play on drum. You know, play. We both play drums, so you know, right. one of us will be on the album and will help coordinate or just, yeah, it's just all of the above. And again, okay. you know, the thing is, like after twenty five years, we have this huge extended family of people who can help, and I think. Right you know, for the youngsters out there, if you're listening, you know, there's this whole thing of like, I, I'm going to do it all myself. Like I can do it, everything I can record, you know, you can record at home and I can get these mics and do, I'm going to record, write it, record it. I'm going to play it. Why would you want to do that?
1: Well, welcome back, Matt. Thanks. Uh, so everyone, we had some uh, technical difficulties here. I think it was, and Matt and I have continued on about the Mac studio conversation. You'll have to just wait to see if I buy one. So Matt, yeah, We were talking about, you know, in person and, you know, studio working on your computer stuff and all of this stuff. But one of the things you, you've mentioned multiple times so far in the episode is your students. So how did you, you move back to Seattle, you've got the, the record label, you're, you're, you're playing all the time, you're recording, you're releasing ums, you're doing all this, you're a musician. Yeah. But you've kind of pivoted to being an educator as well. Why?
0: Uh, <laughs> why? <laughs> um yeah, so for me what um this was about I yeah, the timeline, like the late around 2010, you know, that era, you know, I'd been in the stu- been in the studio a lot, played on a lot of soundtracks and other you know, I'd do commercial jingles. And then I started ah. producing a lot of you know, commercial jingles and I'd written some music. And well, I'm going to interrupt a, you. I'm going to interrupt yeah. you.
1: I, I can't. I can't not ask. Commercial jingles. Give me an example. What would um, we have
0: heard of? Uh, I played on such hits as the Unlimited Pasta Bowl at the Olive Garden, and uh, Robert Half. You know, temp agency stuff or an Oreo commercial. You know, just like random. How do you does come one in get and you're gigs like,
1: to play on the Unlimited Pasta Bowl at Olive Garden? I mean, what does? Where does one go for that type of work?
0: Yeah, you just get a call. Well, I'll tell you that one. Well, that was actually that was the deciding one, because I had played on a lot of these and I'd produced a lot of them. So, for example, the unlimited bullet at the Olive Garden. Uh, I just dropped my kid off at daycare, and it's eight thirty in the morning. I'm on full. We're going full circle. I'm on, I'm in line at a Starbucks waiting to, uh, to order a coffee, and I get a phone call from a music house in new york city who had been recommended to me from a friend and they said uh, i'd been recommended to them and they said uh we need to get a group in the studio can you like get a group in the studio today we need to record two 30 second pieces of music and we need them back by five o'clock their time in new york which would be two Two o'clock seattle time. time And you know, it's 8 30 in the morning. And I was like, yeah, I can do that. Um, and so, you know, I hang up with them, I call around, I call a bunch of people, I call <laughs> uh studios. And at that point, I made I finally got a, the seventh recording studio I call. You know, I'm basically calling, like, are you available for me to record? And they're like, Yeah, when do you want to book time? Like right now. I want to book time, like right now. <laughs> I'll come in. Uh and so yeah, we got the commercial done and we did that, but you know, and, and this is the way, you know, and and to go through like, this is the way this stuff works. It's like, it's, it's frantic in that people were still writing out the music and writing out the charts as I was assembling the group and we all show up to the studio and we're like, okay, we're waiting for the email to come in with the charts. We print out the charts, we start recording, we send the files back, but it's, it's a lot of this, You know, I'm there producing and I'm kind of organizing. I've hired all the people and I'm having to interpret, you know, what people meant on their charts from New York and how the thing's going to work. And and meanwhile, there's going to be more musicians recording over the top of what we did later that day in New York City. And... You know, and and just the way the business works is the intellectual property, the writing part gets more of a financial reward than the musician part. So it was kind of, you know, doing a couple of these and seeing like, oh, right, like I'm doing a lot of this work and I could easily have written that too. So maybe I should learn how to do more of that writing part and getting more of these jobs because, you know, I'm doing a bulk of the work anyway. And so then I kind of pivoted and started writing Uh, Thinking about writing some more music, Um, and then I I ended up eventually. I uh, was like 2017, 16. I went and got a master's in, you know, writing music for TV and film. So I kind of went back and did a full year master's program, just strictly on that, on my writing. And literally, right as I graduated, a friend of mine, Jim Cisco, he teaches at Bellevue College called two weeks before the quarter year was going to start to say, Hey, our music technology teacher just quit. Do you want to teach these classes? So I did that part-time at Bellevue college. And then right as during the pandemic, a spot opened up at Shoreline community college and I applied and ended up getting the job there. So that's, I just kind of, yeah, just kind of okay, came about. I have,
1: to, I have to ask. So you get a master's in how to write music for commercial and t- film and television how does that differ from writing music for your own album what's the how does this how's it different
0: um it it's different in that um you're there to be a collaborator to the story right so you're not um yeah, what's different is when I write music for albums, it's just kind of like, my. this is my vision. This is entirely my vision. Like, okay. I'm going right. to do what I'm going to want to do. Whereas if you're, um, when I'm working on, a, yeah, a project, like the vision is the collective goal of whatever this TV episode is or this movie is or this commercial or this, you know, YouTube video, whatever it is, and so you're there to kind of serve it and kind of come up with ideas. A lot. It's w- what struck me is that it's very much like being a jazz musician and just improvising. Like I'll sit down and I'll have this, you know, I'll have a blank, you know, video. It's funny to watch, especially like cartoons or episodes or movies where there's no music and it's really not good. Well, my, <laughs> like, and then you realize like how much the music really supports it right so then you use you if you approach it from the aspect of like i'm here to make this better i'm here to support it and move move the story along sometimes foreshadow sometimes not um but it's really fun to to have that you know not power but just to be able to kind of contribute you know and just write something to, to to do that and I got a, I got started, uh, my friend Tim Tyler, who, again, if you, want a, if you want a life in the arts, it's all about friendships and collaborations. Tim Tyler was a friend of a friend. Early on in Origin Records, he came and made some commercials for us and filmed some concerts. And he calls me one day and he's like, yeah, I'm going to do this YouTube series about, like, I'm really into motorcycles, so we're going to do this YouTube series about motorcycle stuff. And I don't know what it is, but I want I want an all drum soundtrack, so I want you to do the music. and I was like, okay, and we did it, and it got like tens or hundreds of views. (laughs) (laughs) Tens or hundreds, you know? It evolved, and like I think we just did episode 100, but like like 12 episodes in, I was doing a gig in Toronto, and he calls me and he says, "I don't know what just happened, but like this thing's taken off. Like we." We, we did this thing and like up until that we've gotten like each video got viewed like 500 times. He's like, I don't know what happened, but like all of a sudden this thing's got like 10,000 views in a day. And then I went and looked at it after the gig and it had been up to 20,000 or something like that. And it just keeps, it kept going and kept going and took off. And so, you know, it's like fast forward, it's like approaching combined, you know, all of them's like 30 million views. So like, I think about like my little rinky dink jazz records, <laughs> like you know, that I've, you know, moved a few thousand units and then, you know, but you know, I write music for this other thing that's been viewed 30 million times. Um, So that, that, I think that, that part of it's just kind of fun, you know, all right. f- to me, I, for me. I,
1: I have to ask, cause this is me making fun kind of a view, but don't take it real personal, but what was the inspiration for the unlimited pasta at
0: Olive Garden? How does one get inspired to write, you know, what was, that was, was Well, that they, they wanted like a, well, and, that, and that's, you know, like coming back full circle. They wanted like a, kind of like a Frank Sinatra, jazzy crooner song, okay. right? They wanted, okay. you know, all, okay. You know, Olive Garden Italian, maybe Dean Martin-esque kind right. of, it's a more, you know, right. that, that, but they wanted um yeah they wanted a jazzy kind of frank sinatra live at the sands kind of vibe
1: so they give you kind of that parameter yeah that's the framework that they want you to work within then you come (laughs) back with with your interpretation of that.
0: Yeah. And that, and, and yeah, and full disclosure, I didn't write those ones. I was just hired to go in and record it. So somebody else had written all the charts and we kind of came in and, and play it. But so, you know, on the charts, it says Allah, la Count Basie live at the Sands, and right. me as a professional musician needs to know, you know, has to what? have gone and listened to a ton of records over my lifetime and know, oh, yeah, I know exactly what they mean because I've okay. listened to that record and I know exactly the drum pattern and the bass pattern for all that stuff. So
1: you were given five hours to put that no, together. Two. Two hours.
0: Two hours yeah. to put
1: that together. Plenty of time. Yeah. What? I mean, What's the, the process? The, so you bring the musicians together, you guys get the chart. you look at it. It's not like you're rehearsing a whole lot. You're, you're literally sitting down playing the parts while somebody's running quote-unquote tape, right? Yeah. Okay, yep. so you kick it back to New York. There's no time for them really to give you any feedback, is there? I mean, it's either good or...
0: Yeah, that was pretty... You know, you know, this is a 30-second piece of music so it's pretty quick but that was pre-zoom right there was no zooming into the session now these nowadays you can monitor via zoom and listen to it in real time but yeah we'd record something and then you know quickly bounce out an mp3 clip and email it to the producers and they'd listen to it maybe make some changes and send it back um but yeah no that's the way it is and and like if if the you know if you're looking for a line of demarcation between like amateur musician and professional musician like this is this is the job the job is to show up and say i need you to do this right now (laughs) like play this part maybe you know we're going to do two takes maybe three and then we have to move on because we have you know for that particular you know we were recording two separate pieces of music that the client was going to choose um and that's that's the job you just need to show up and play and so you know for me too is producer you know i'm going through a list of like i'm calling it i need a bass player first one can't do it okay i'll move to the second one they can't they're you know they've already got some they're already committed to something else okay go to the third one and find all these people to, to to build out a session and make it work the client you know they don't care if somebody can't you know they they expect we're paying for this so we expect it to be done and then you know all the people down below make it happen
1: all, so this in this example that we're referencing, you literally got two hours to put this you know together. That's that's crazy. What's it normally like? When do you like? How much time do you normally get in this arena?
0: Um, it, it depends. It's just project project to project. So, but you, you, you know, get like, a lot of times I'll get a day to write. You know, <sighs> uh, if I'm working on a commercial or a show, you may have a week. You may have a day. Um, okay. I do this show, KCTS Presents, where it was mm-hmm. 18 episodes, I think, that right. we had a couple months to do. So, okay. So, yeah, they're some short. Time they're, then. Yeah, they're like five or six. Uh, there's five or six minutes per episode. And so, I do usually you get two, you know, you'd have to do two per week um, to, keep, to stay to on track. But you're able
1: to your number one bass player. If, if you, in other words, you're not. Like when you started this one, you said it was the seventh studio that could finally get you in. When you have a little bit more time, you can go to the the studio that's maybe the better fit to work at for this type of project. You can get the, the players together that you want, correct?
0: Yeah, so, and you can sometimes, too, I'll combine. If I'm working on multiple projects all at once, which is common, right. and I say, okay, well, uh, an example would be uh, last week. I had to record some Bossa Nova music. I had to record um some Christmas music because a lot of Christmas show, you know, all the Christmas yeah. shows get done in July. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I called somebody in for a session. I was like, all right, so now we're gonna play some Bossa Nova music. That's great. Okay, now uh I just need a solo, a saxophone solo over the middle part of jingle bells. Okay, ready and go. And then, you know, you finish that and you move on, and it's just a lot of it is um the unglamorous part of just organization and uh, knowing what you need at the end and figuring out how you need that to get there. Um, And sometimes, yeah, you write a piece of music and you listen to it and you're like, man, that's just kind of boring. But then when you match it up to a picture, yeah, I did one. (laughs) I did one. I played drums on a, a cue one time for a, 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 a pharmaceutical product, you know, a drug, okay. a drug, you know, and right. you know, they have to go to commercials where they say side effects may include, and they run through all the side effects and they just have this mu- little music going on behind that. And so, yeah, you're looking at this plane, you're like, man, this is really boring, but you have to realize that it needs to be boring because they're getting out all these side effects that you may encounter.
1: So now, now that you're, instructing students in in wanting to get into the music business so when you when you started playing drums yeah did you ever think that you would be playing on a pharmaceutical product absolutely not no so (laughs) you you wanted to you wanted to play Carnegie Hall or, or Madison Square Garden or or uh the ranch or not you're, you're too young to know the ranch tavern in ellensburg but the tractor tavern in ballard those those yeah. are the places you were aspiring to play and now but you're making a living by providing sound reinforcement in commercial products in in some that's part of your part of what you do yeah
0: yeah yeah <laughs> that's it's kind of cool man i mean that's well, it's yeah, kind of cool i always tell always anyone who cares to listen that you know is the music business it's a marathon not a sprint and and you're going to take some detours and all that and even too uh it this is a relationship relationship based uh industry
1: which i think most
0: are and and that you know a lot of times you, you well that's bad like why you know why is it who you know? Well, part of the reason is who you know, because, for example, you know, the record, the Olive Garden recording session, right. right? I have two to four hours to get this done. And it's not just what I have to get done. I mean, this is a, I don't know, $50,000, $100,000 budgeted project when you mm-hmm. consider the commercial shoot, the video, like right? all the posts. All, you know, I'm like one little cog in this giant project mm-hmm. um so i need to know that the people i'm gonna hire are gonna show up on time and, and are gonna play the part right you know so that mm-hmm. is why you know it's your your professional reputation it's how good you are at at right. your instrument and 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 i tell you know again anyone who wants to listen it's like yeah you know getting work it's not about you know your social media profile or all you know the fancy stuff you do it's about showing up on time and and sounding good and being competent at what you do. And I think if you have those couple things, you could be a great musician, but if you don't show up on time, you're not going to work. Like if you show up on time and are moderately good, you're going to be more successful than a phenomenal musician who rarely shows up on time. Because again, you know, the session last week, you know, I was in the studio all day and I had, you know, people coming in and out on two hour increments because of the way I needed to get everything done. So again, you know, just realizing that you know, our smart all, our our small part is part of a huge you know, big budget. Um so yeah, that's I I think, you know, for going out and touring, you know, when I was young, I went out and toured and slept on floors and you know, Dingy hotel rooms and and all that stuff and that was great but you know who am I kidding? You don't uh, want to do that anymore. I, I I do I do like nicer hotel rooms and uh, priority or uh, yeah what is economy comfort? I much rather Counter-com. fly economy comfort than regular economy <laughs> these days as I get into my late middle ages. Oh gosh. <laughs> so,
1: at Shoreline, what? So what, what classes, what are you doing? What, what are you instructing? What classes are you teaching and and what does Shoreline offer to people?
0: Yeah. So I think Shoreline community college is incredibly unique in that um, we have a instrumental music program. So if you want to go get a music degree or even if you just want to play music, you know, maybe you want to sing in the choir, play in the concert band, play in the jazz band, we have Mm -hmm. programs for that. And then, Uh, We were one of the first, if not the first in the state going back to the 80s to offer a degree in the recording technology, right? Music Mm -hmm. technology, the art of recording. So when I was a student there on the instrumental music side, you know, there was the recording students who literally all they had to learn was set up mics, record into the recording console, record onto tape, you mix, good to go. Right now, obviously, it's much more complicated. You need to know all the software, all the hardware. You know, some students still do the recording console. Others are completely on the computer. So that's the side that I teach now is that I teach in the music technology department. Um, I teach. uh, So we have two main degrees, which is the audio engineering program where you learn how to record at a traditional recording studio. And then there's electronic music production which is learning how to record on the computer um, and make music primarily based on the computer, which I think most of us do at home now. It's what I do at home. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, yeah, making stuff for PBS, like on a rig at my house, it's a few thousand dollars. So, you know, knowing how to use those tools and, and be creative. So I teach intro to music technology, first-year audio recording, uh, intro to game audio you know, advanced game audio sounds, um, sampling, synthesizers, all this stuff. So my stepson
1: went there
0: and he was in the program.
1: And I remember they had to put the music onto, uh, the movie inception.
0: Oh yeah. I watched that actually. Yeah. I, I ended up seeing the end result.
1: I was, that was really a phenomenal, Idea. I mean, it's, it, you know, it's, it was interesting to, to see him. He really enjoyed that process. I think he, he ended up, uh, getting a computer science, uh, went and got a computer science degree and he's working in that arena. Um, but his, you know, his dad's a recording artist. So he was kind of following
0: and. Uh, yeah, I think, you know, I just, a I finished my first year there. So I'm getting ready to start my second year, uh, teaching there, but, yeah, just, I mean, if you think, about, and this is what I talked to students on day one is like, think about how you incorporate, how you interact with audio on a daily basis. Right. Everyone listens to Spotify, but you listen. Maybe you listen to the radio. You watch TV. There's music on the shows. There's music on commercials.
1: Mm-hmm. There's
0: music in video games. There's sound in video games. Uh, yeah. The alarm on, you know, or uh, oh yeah, they on. I'm holding up an iPhone for no one, anyone, you know, you're <laughs> listening to it. But the sound. I have a video. The guy, the original sound designer at Apple, like the when you if you have an iPhone and you take a photo and you hear that shutter sound right Is that that's the sound of the 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 original sound designer at apples that's his pentax camera that was recorded still really? to this day yeah so it's it's like the sound it's yeah yeah 30 years old or whatever that's but good. just you know you think about that because imagine if you had your phone and you didn't you push the button and there's no sound like there's you, no you know there's you, no feedback yeah there's people I mean, thinking they're like did, did that work? Did that do it? And so, you know, the, the fun thing is just uh, I think most people you hear the final result. You don't hear all the iterations that go into um, making something right, and right. Uh, the trial and error that kind of goes back and forth and just, you know, the artistic process. So I, you know, that's, that's the fun thing too is and also just telling you know, uh, you know, telling my students and telling younger creatives who, you know, it's like embrace feedback because Mm -hmm. you're not going to nail it on your first try. Um, right. That, you know, people are not going to like it or they're going to make changes and don't take that as a criticism of you and everything that you've done to get to this point. You know, it's just, it's like, it's, it's commerce. It's, you know, they want to buy a product and, you know, it's like if you go buy jeans and you're like, these are not my size. I need, I like these jeans, but I just need them in my size. Right. Um, that's usually what the job is to be an audio or uh, an audio creative is that you you get close and then you give it to the client and then they make some changes and then you make a great product that comes out of that. All right.
1: Well, to respect your time, we'll we'll begin to wrap this up. So, one of the questions I love to ask um, musicians, and I'd like you for the sake of this conversation, because it's Washington State related, as a performer, where's your favorite place to play music in Washington State?
0: Oh man, that's a that's a hard one. Well, I'll you, I'll let you cheat. You can give me a couple, but you know, uh, where's the? A... You know, um, <clears throat> well. I will I will say this, that there are uh, – music is an – eco. like, music should be an ecosystem. And we need all those places. Yes. So, I, I've been lucky enough to play, you know, at the Paramount or at Benaroy Hall, like, do these really nice places, which are nice. But then, you know, it's really fun to play just a dive bar, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, because well, you go in an and you're just like, man –
1: Like, give me an example of a dive bar that's a great venue as an artist, though. I mean, like, do you like have you you ever played the tractor? Let's just use the tractor. So, the tractor's got that low stage that is you can be the audience can be like right there next to you. Do you like playing at the tractor? Is that a venue to play that you like?
0: Yeah, for you personally, personally, the tractor. Connor Byrne across the street, right? Connor Byrne's a great spot. Okay. Uh, Cause especially like if there are crowds into it and you kind of do that, but like, you know, Daryl's Tavern or, oh uh, you know, there's just so many great places or, uh, okay. you know, like you show up and you're like, I, I mean, I remember showing up in this is not in Washington State, but showing up place in Portland and you're just like, you get on stage, you're like, Oh man, like for jazz venue, it's like, it sounds just like the village vanguard in here. Or it's, you know, it's like, right. it's got that, that closeness mm-hmm. um and a lot of time you know sometimes it's the you know the staff and the people right. who are involved well, that's, that's... or the audience you're just like you know it's just it's just fun so i i just like and i mean to go full circle too you know we started a jazz festival the ballet jazz festival and part of that was kind of like well you know, we don't know anything about running a jazz festival, but we've played a lot of them and we know right. what we like as a performer and we know what we dislike. So let's mm-hmm. just do take all the things we like and do that and be all better. Right. So, um you know, Jazz Alley is super fun place to play, but also, um, you know, the old New Orleans Creole restaurant down in Pioneer Square. Yeah. That was that was always a blast. Because you oh that, I mean that cause that was a blast because Gay Anderson who owned it, she she was just like she just loved musicians and loved everyone there and would take care of you and um give you dinner, you know, get yeah, mad. See? She'd get mad if you didn't eat some food eat. while you were there. That's <laughs> so, awesome. All right. Yeah.
1: So the one place you have okay, so when I started asking this question, musicians. I I expected I expected it, it also depends on the genre, right? Like you, you, you probably don't want to play El Corazon. I mean, you know, I don't even like to walk on the floor in there. You know, much less play there. So it's the genre of music and all that. But one venue, and you haven't named that venue yet, has been surprisingly the 800 pound gorilla in, ref, in people reference. So I'm going to give you one more venue, Seattle-based venue, to see if you'll get it, just to see how, or an all. Forget. I'm going to tell you the Triple Door. Oh yeah, musicians musicians seem to love the triple door to play at as a as a venue to perform at. So my flip side to the question is, now you're in the audience. Where's a great place to go see and hear music in in, in in the area?
0: Um, yeah, I mean, I was at the Royal Room last night. That okay. that's, that was fun. I mean I think for me you know that question now is like cuz uh I my joke is I'll see somebody and I'll be like man it's been a whole pandemic since I've seen you last <laughs> 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 run into people so it's right. mainly going to where uh people are I mean for me you know Tulas was the the place that everyone kind of hang out hung out and right that's closed now but I mean if I look at my calendar where I'm where I am going uh it's you know the royal room it's where I go frequently vermilion you know the seattle jazz fellowships wednesdays up on capitol hill um and jazz alley going there yeah and the triple door i'll be there the triple door for me um i mean i think the flip side the triple door is an awesome venue i've played there a bunch of times but like the the it's like and, and I think, you know, the ecosystem is that there's all those different places, right? Whereas the mm-hmm. triple door, just the nature of the stage and the lighting, a lot of time I can't even see. I can't even, wow. I can't see past the first row, so I don't even know. It's like sometimes it's talking into the void. You don't know if the people there are actually hearing it or, or what okay. versus, you know, the small intimate jazz club right. situation where you can see the, to the back of the room and kind of get that instant right. feedback. But you know, all of them are great, and they all have different Well, they, no, it, roles.
1: it's not that it's not that, that Daryl's is a, you know, if you pick the triple door, that means Daryl's is bad. No, they all exist. It's just I love to hear where, where musicians are treated well and they enjoy playing in the audience. You're the first person to acknowledge that the lighting at the triple door makes it harder for you to see the audience. So that's an interesting piece. All right. Is there a venue in the area that you haven't played that you want to play?
0: Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I can't, I've been on the stage at the more, I don't know if I played for an audience at the more, um, yeah, that's a hard, I mean, I think I, I'm a bit, it's weird in jazz because like right now our venues, you know, are slowly coming back and they Mm -hmm. haven't, um, we haven't gotten to that point yet. Okay. I mean, well, not in Washington. I mean, if, if the venue I have not played would be the village Vanguard, which would be the all time. Oh, that would be, that would know, be, that's, the... that is the crowning achievement of one's jazz career okay. um, in this thing. But um, I think, you know, if anyone out there wants to open up a jazz club, give me a call. <laughs> there you go. You're going play on their stage. Seattle right now. There's, there's, there's opportunity for it.
1: I, I think, I think after having more and more of these conversations, because right now I'm on a run, it seems like with with musicians in the jazz field and you're all kind of saying the same thing, which is if you build it, they will come.
0: Yeah. 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 I think too. And especially now too, because you know, we've gone through two years, two and a half years, three years of, what it feels like to be by yourself most of the time. And you're just like, Oh wow. Yeah. Sitting in a room, having that communal, whether it's a movie or live theater Mm -hmm. or, you know, symphony, live music. It's all, it's like, it's much better when you're able to hang out with your friends. All right. You drink coffee? I do. I drink too much.
1: (laughs) Well, that's true. We've already talked about.
0: Well, I, and I, I say, do I ask you if you drink
1: coffee? We've talked about Starbucks two or three times in the show, but that's not really. Co- no, just kidding.
0: So, where's a great coffee shop? Um, I I go to Diva Espresso on 145th and Greenwood on my way to Shoreline Community College every morning, and okay. uh, I love the trivia question, which I usually get once a week. Right, I'm 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 about one for five, two for five on that during the week. Okay um but that's that's my go to spot and also uh uh yeah so that that's my go to spot for your, so what's the go
1: to drink what do you what do you what are you ordering when you go there
0: um I went there yesterday and I got a double espresso and i All got right. other than that i get drip a large uh drip coffee um okay. but for me, yeah traveling over to Europe to play they told me one time. Like their German word for indigestible, or or maybe it was in Italy, but they're like no one. You know, you they'll have yeah in Germany. My friend was saying they'll have coffee with milk in the morning, but after that, no no more milk in the coffee. So that's so once you go past breakfast, it's mm-hmm. espresso the rest of the day. All right.
1: Back in your days when you were a barista at Starbucks, let's go back there. Did, did
0: you, what Starbucks coffee did you like? Um, I would have lattes. All right. I couldn't really get into cappuccino. I can't do lattes anymore because I don't want that much milk in the coffee. Okay. Um, but, and I didn't do espressos. Espresso was fairly, that, that was like my yeah, mid to late 20s when I started touring a lot over in Europe that would be when I would do that's when I got an espresso so f- mainly for me it was just uh, lattes A latte, okay. and drip coffee right. well what dri- uh, in the Starbucks
1: arena what other drips did you like because like there was one that people loved I could not stand everyone the Komodo dragon one did you ever try that no that was horrible I'm sorry Starbucks that <laughs> Komodo dragon ugh never liked that one I'm, i like their italian roast personally that's, yeah that's, that's good
0: i mean, I, mean I, the, I was there like the whole pre pike place roast or whatever mm-hmm. um yeah but uh yeah and that's back when if people like we still sold the beans so yep. somebody would order a He's, pound of coffee and you'd go and scoop it out the beans. of the bin yep, yep. Mm-hmm. we yeah. did that but um i remember uh I remember my manager there, like when we were opening the store, he, we, we went on a field trip and we went out to a bunch of different coffee shops. We all got coffee and and you just had this analysis of like, how was the service? How was the coffee? How did they prepare it? And which I I mean, I will say working at Starbucks was an incredible experience in terms of giving me an education on running a business
1: Mm -hmm.
0: and just, uh, conducting kind of entrepreneurship in a way because I remember I, I would get mad because, uh, um, some, I not mad. I was annoyed because a woman would order like a double espresso and then just want all this milk foam on the top, which, you know, while you technically you should probably have paid the extra 25 cents for that or something like that. But I remember yeah. my, my manager said to me one time, she comes in seven days a week, sometimes twice a day, like, I, I don't care about the extra 25 cents, you know, right, she's, right. she's there. And in, and in a way I parlay that into, you know, the Ballard Jazz Festival. If anyone out there listening has come to the Ballard Jazz Festival, thank you because we have people who come year after year after year and it's like seeing family. And right. I feel incredibly fortunate that we really don't have to spend a lot of money on marketing because we know people are going to come back because right. they have a good experience. Right. Cause hopefully we've provided them with kind of that good experience. Extra milk and, foam. Yeah, just <laughs> the extra milk. Foam. Yeah, it's like throw in that <laughs> throw in that extra milk foam, and people will remember it, and they will come right. back. Um, right. so to me that was, and also too, just kind of reverse engineering. Like if you're gonna move, if you're starting a business, look at who else is doing that. What are they doing that's successful? Do that right. and try and put mm-hmm. your own spin on it. And even I think about that, like just yeah, writing music for. TV and film stuff uh, or to get back to the Olive Garden commercial. The client says that they want music like Dean Martin. Uh, Do that, figure out, Mm -hmm. figure out how to reverse engineer that with your own stylistic sense to it and you'll be successful. All right. Three, three questions ago.
1: First of all, when you're not doing music, when you're not teaching, what do you like to do for entertainment in yeah, what's what? What do you do for fun? Uh,
0: I have kids, so I pretty much drive them around. <laughs> but I will say, uh, you're a chauffeur. <laughs> yeah, I will say, you know, following the Mariners. We're we're all as a family. We are we are following the Mariners, and even my you know New York City born uh, dancer wife is uh, was better at spotting. The talent that is julio rodriguez early in the season than even me uh so you know we are we're watching that I, I also like bicycling so okay. all right riding bikes The um, mariners are this I, I i can't
1: i can't say anything about the mariners because my heart's been broken too many times so i'm i'm checking the standings every day and getting a little nervous getting a little excited a little nervous a little (coughs) excited i should get back to me in a month get back to me in a month and you know we can talk
0: yeah i should uh my my kids we watched the 95 the hit right edgar's hit that the mariners beat the yankees to go on to the alcs in 1995 and i was explaining to my children like uh just context i watched this live you know your mother and i had just started dating and she did not own a television so i went and bought like a little tiny five inch black and white tv that we were that i watched the hit on uh on
1: that so i remember how the city of seattle changed that summer yeah it became a baseball town it, it was so interesting. You'd be walking because I was living in Seattle at that time and I was working at Starbucks and uh, be walking around and people were talking baseball. And before it was like, oh, yeah, the Mariners, who cares? But it was, the city was captivated. That was awesome. All right. So your wife found Julio Rodriguez's talent before you did. Yes. Okay. Yeah, he's he's pretty amazing, isn't he? All right. What didn't I ask you that I should have asked you? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I well, don't... And hopefully, if we've if we've done a good job, the answer is like I think we've covered it all. So that's the that's what I'm aiming for. But this is the chance if we overlook something. What did
0: we overlook? Um. Yeah, I I, I don't know. I I mean, I would say for those. Uh, if if you see me out and about, I, I I host a radio show. There's that other thing. So if anyone okay. wants to tune in Saturdays at 4 o'clock uh, West Coast time to 88.5 KNKX, they can hear me talk about new music on the New Music Review, okay. um, which is a show I host on that. Um, but other than that, you know, uh, come say hi to me. if Come to the Ballad Jazz Festival and let's chat. I like talking to people.
1: I'll put links in there. Okay. So here's your last question. I'm stealing this one from a former guest. Okay. It's cake
0: or pie and why? Uh, Okay. My absolute favorite is banana cream pie. Okay. But it is very rare that I come across that. So if they have banana cream pie, I will do banana cream pie. Other than that, I'm I'm most likely gonna get have cake. I okay. don't like apple pie. I don't like blueberry pie or raspberry. Like I don't. Okay. Yeah, I'll have maybe key lime. Definitely banana cream. Other than that, I'll do cake. All right, and and a double espresso.
1: <laughs> there we go. All right, everything's better with a double espresso. Everything. Yeah. <laughs> So Matt, thanks for taking the time and uh, thanks for enduring the technical snafu. Appreciate that. I'm looking forward to you guys relaunching the Ballard uh, Jazz Festival. That'll be that'll be awesome. And I'm going to just... Here, here's the other plug is you got to help get jazz music over east of the Cascades. You need to... There needs to be venues over here in the eastern Washington for, for you guys to come and play at. Because... Yeah, yeah,
0: just, I, yeah. I, I will say I've there's there's a circuit of wineries sometimes too that I've gone over and uh, played mm-hmm. at, and I did one before the pandemic, and I was supposed to do one in 2020, that ended up getting canceled. So I will be over at some point because perfect. It's all right. Uh, it's great to travel yeah. east of the mountains.
1: Yeah, it's awesome. Where do you like to go Easter, In
0: where where in eastern Washington do you like to go? Um. We've been to Yakima a bunch. Uh, we mm-hmm. did a trip a couple of years ago. We went to, uh, we went uh, north, like we went through Leavenworth and then crossed over. I forget where we stayed, but we eventually made our way to Spokane, Idaho. Okay. Uh, came back. I've I've uh, ridden uh, uh, the trail of the Coeur d'Alenes from Spokane okay. over to Coeur d'Alene and then down, um, kind of the bike tour through Oregon and Montana.
1: Which oh, is wow. great. Okay. And then,
0: you know, I played a bunch in Walla Walla and the Palouse and doing that circuit, which is, I mean, it's, you know, it's crazy that you can be in Seattle and drive 45 minutes, be in the mountains and then drive another 45 minutes and be in the desert, the yeah. high plains. Yeah.
1: <laughs> it's like a, no, it's, it's amazing, isn't yeah. it? Yeah.
0: All right, Matt. Well, thank you so much for being here. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me.